0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Deck Arts Podcast. Today I am here with Rachel Hannikut, another Parsons Cooper Hewitt Masters candidate, and also my very helpful TA last semester. Today we will be talking about a paper Rachel wrote on how dairy products were marketed in 20th century America and the status of milk products in promotion today. So for any milk enthusiast, today is your day. Rachel, one of your first papers was on Henry Dreyfus's ice cream package prototypes for the National Dairy Products Corporation. Why did you pick that object? Um, I picked that object
1: um, mostly because I'm really interested in the everyday experience. And I had done research in my undergrad on corporate design, and I found myself really attracted to packaging as sort of this... uh, outward expression of, of corporate identity and image making. Um, And additionally, Henry Dreyfus is one of the sort of heavyweight industrial designers of the 20th century. So to see these uh, sort of ephemeral little objects uh, with flowers and these little gouache cow heads, um, it was, I was intrigued. And, um, you know, through my research, we, Cooper Hewitt holds Henry Dreyfus's archives. So I was able to go through um, sort of his microfilms and all of the other prototypes that we have of his and really examine them more closely um, and sort of look at how the everyday visual culture arose out of these types of consumer products.
0: Okay, so for this, so for the paper you did on the milk-centered corporation packaging, you looked at Borden's, Hood, Laughing Cow, Elsie, and Elmer, I didn't know they both had names. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Believe it or not, so actually, Elsie and Elmer are married. Um, that is sort of the brand lore created by Borden. Um, so when looking at milk, I think, I mean, if you just sort of look in any, any grocery store um, advertisements today, there is so much uh, sort of bovine advertising, just a lot of cows everywhere. Frequently, they are uh, very shapely lady cows, um, and so, the more I looked at milk advertising, the more I became interested in why we we as you know Americans as human beings really um, have such a fascination with milk and dairy. And then on the flip side, there's also um, you know all of sort of new findings, new research about well, maybe milk isn't really that healthy for us. And um, so it's sort of this interesting dialogue between corporations the government and consumers, and through all of these milk corporations, um, just looking at the advertisements that they produce, at the packages that they produced, um, and the way they market milk as sort of this pastoral ideal of American food culture, um, relative to the actual reality of, of sort of milk's rise to prominence in America. Um, it's, it's, there's lots to be revealed,
0: I think, in that relationship. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think it's when, so Rachel sent me sort of the presentation version of the paper, but, um, she starts out with the history of American dairy, which I found fascinating, because there's no native species of cows to America, which is crazy, because we do drink so much milk, and they have the Got Milk campaign, um, but you sort of go into that, and then, um... He touched briefly on, like, the pasturation process, mm-hmm. insulated canisters and refrigerated delivery trucks, which I had never thought of before, and um, automa- automated milking machines, um, and then the swill milk scandal. The swill milk <laughs> scandal. Yeah, that was um, a big hurrah. And babies died. Yeah, many babies died. Um, if,
1: if this... 1858 New York Times article is to believe, be believed, um, in that year over 8,000 infants died drinking swill milk. And so basically what had happened was a number of distilleries and breweries had grown up in New York and looking for other ways to utilize their grains once they had been um, you know, spent in the brewing process, they decided that they would feed them to cattle and livestock. Um so of course using spent grain that had been used in the production of alcohol had a really negative impact on both the dairy cows and the human consumers of that end product. Um, and it was really a whole to-do. It was seen as the sort of uh enterprising way to utilize all of the product and all of the byproduct but in reality, this milk was being completely adulterated. Um, people were pouring water, eggs, flour, paint, plaster of Paris in to make it appear ultra white and fresh and clean. Um, and in new cities, um, you know, particularly New York, as women entered the workforce and weren't able to stay at home and breastfeed Uh, or care for their children in that traditional way, they were turning to milk and alternatives um, to breastfeeding. And swill milk was a very accessible, cheap product. And of course, it had extremely negative health effects on children. Um, And it was really, it was one of the, the first sort of food crises in America. I think we're all familiar with you know Upton Sinclair and the Jungle and uh, sort of meat, meat uh, butchering and packaging and distributing. But milk is sort of really where where it all began. Um, an expose ran in Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, and there were engravings of the cows being held in their tiny uh, little. I don't know what what are they? Stalls? Yes, stalls and like <laughs> suspended from hammocks, being milked. Oh, no. um, it was a whole it was a whole thing, um, and it was sort of this era of reform and government intervention and um, you know assisting the consumer at long last. So it, it really led the board of health to introduce the first food and safety laws in 1862, and that predates the sort of early. 20th century food regulations that we tend to to pay more attention to um but it is really you know milk has such a a specific requirement uh for storage and distribution so a lot can go wrong um which is why we needed these regulations so early on yeah
0: glad they did that because milk can be gross if you drink it and it's not good anymore so true if anyone's ever done that um but then, so I guess they come back from this scandal and do they do that through packaging or is it just because people feel like they need to drink milk? People felt like they needed
1: to drink milk. It's, milk in particular is, occupies this strange sort of middle ground between being a food and being a drink. Um, it is liquid, of course, but it's opaque um, it seems to have these sort of healthful qualities. It's always associated with nutrition. Um, and so there began to be these sort of larger industrial complexes at work, um, sort of like you know today's National Dairy Council. Um, and this was groups of producers and manufacturers and distributors that came together to sort of set prices for milk, to um, sort of put forward... These marketing campaigns that really asserted the importance of milk in the everyday diet. Um, and so it's you know whether whether or not these claims were founded, milk really began to be associated with this sort of um, like pastoral, ideal past of America. Um, And it was really something associated with purity and cleanliness and thus, you know, the the whiteness of milk um, and later the whiteness of the milkmen's uh, uniforms when they delivered the product. It really became this sort of association with goodness and purity. Um, So people did drink milk. They used it also as an ingredient in other foods. So it was porridge, um, cakes, baking, also the introduction and uh, sort of rise of coffee and tea drinking led to a lot of greater milk consumption as sort of, you know, the accessory to that drink. Um, so people really looked at it as, you know, a main sort of staple in their diet. It was, you know, grains, meats, dairy, milk specifically, um and also, you know, things like cheese and butter, which require milk but end up being uh, slightly easier to distribute just because they are they are solids. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really it, all of these other sort of branches of dairy come from fluid milk and its distribution in America. Um, and I do think that the packaging enabled that to happen. People in, you know, you would go to your sort of corner grocer and pick up your product, but as the country grew and expanded and roadways began to develop, um, people were suburbanizing, they were spreading out, and the ability to transport milk over long distances and periods of time thanks to, as you mentioned, the, um, you know, the lined canisters and refrigeration uh, on motor vehicles, that really led to the greater distribution of the product.
0: So, milk was being consumed before that locally, and then it's
1: now not really a local item. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the other interesting things about it is, um, I'm also I'm looking at milk consumption in Europe as well for another project, and people... In sort of the old days, um, they remember, you know, driving past the dairy and you saw the cows and you really had a relationship and um, that was sort of a, you know, our dwindling connection to the land still existed in dairy production. Um, But now, as time has gone on, these are basically nameless, faceless cows owned by nameless, faceless farmers um, whose product really feeds into the dairy conglomerate. Um, and so when you buy a gallon of milk, you rarely have any idea where it came from, um, or really how it got to you. So it is, you know, there's very much even looking at sort of the raw milk movement and, uh, you know, you can buy a $6 quart of milk in a glass jar at most grocery stores today. Um, and so that's sort of this, you know, artisanal localism, uh, that people have tried to return to, um. And it also has to do a lot with, you know, you mentioned pasteurization earlier. Um, There are so many more types of milk now. You can get 2% whole, 1% skim. um, And there are all of these additional processes that are made possible by industrialization and scientific technological advance. Um, But it's still basically the same product. You still feel like you have this wholesome, pure drink um, that has a lot of, you know, associations with childhood and nostalgia. And uh, I think that part of that is fed by the packaging that we would have seen, you know, on the breakfast table or in the refrigerator. Um, so it sort of creates this aura around milk products.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I was... At one point, you mentioned the milkman in the milk packaging section, and I found that very interesting because... You kind of talk about the scandal of the milkman, and he comes in like he. Some of them have keys to the house, and sort of the housewife. Yeah, relationship. It was sort of a
1: uh, a risque relationship. It's very similar to that of the traveling salesman and the housewife, um, as as marketing and advertising and sales distribution networks were really uh, forming, and it was this sort of pseudo-trustworthy figure uh, that you really wanted to believe but weren't sure you could trust because they are out-of-towners and they're coming from far away and and peddling these products that you didn't even know you needed. And the Milkman, sort of in that same vein, um, and they were always men um, because women and girls sometimes delivered the product, but It was mostly men and boys who became lifetime milkmen uh, working for a few corporations. Um, But yeah, there's just these men in their white uniforms who would come into your home sometimes in the dead of night, you know, very early in the morning. (laughs) They would have a key to your house and they would go in, grab the old bottles, leave the new right in the refrigerator um, and sort of whisk back off into the night. Um, And it was really... You know, again, this assertion of cleanliness and hygiene and purity. It's a lot, you know, a lot of waiters and waitstaff wear white to sort of uh, present themselves as pristine uh, and clean. And it was very much the same way with milkmen. Um, they, they sort of played into this mythology around the wholesomeness and also the ritual of milk delivery. Um, but on the flip side... For a lot of consumers, they perceived the milk bottle as disposable and just sort of, um, you know, a a vessel to be tossed or now recycled. But to the corporation, every milk bottle that they did not receive back after that day's delivery was a loss. Um, So that's really why paperboard and cardboard packaging became the norm. Um, It was a lot easier to... Store when not in use. You could just, you know, fold these cartons into shape and then fill them, um, and the consumer could do whatever they wanted with it at the end. Um, but in that same vein, it also allowed distribution at supermarkets and these new uh, sort of giant meccas of consumption in a suburbanizing America. So you could, you know, rather than the milkman driving to your house every day, you. Uh, the housewife, typically of course, would drive to the supermarket and pick up, um, you know, a, a paperboard carton of milk instead. Um, so that's really, I think, the turning point is the shift from the glass bottle to the paperboard. And whereas the milkman sort of represented the dairies of the past um, as as sort of a, a, a mascot, if you will, that responsibility really fell onto the packages and the package designer, um, when the shift from glass to paper occurred.
0: And when did they stop having milkmen? Do you know?
1: Um, they still had them certainly into mid, uh, the mid 20th century. There are still milk delivery services today. Uh, they are few and far between, but there are still places, uh, where you can sort of get on that list. Um, but it really ceased to be, um, you know, this huge distribution network. I think around World War II, um, when so much of our cons- consumption patterns changed, um, and a lot of those resources were, of course, going overseas, including milk. Um, but it remained this sort of super American thing uh, to to consume and to have in your pantry uh, or your refrigerator, I suppose. But pantry, if you had evaporated or condensed milk, which was another whole side of uh, the sort of expansion of milk's reign on America, was these super easy to use canned products that could stay fresh forever, um, could be used in a variety of recipes, baking so on and so forth. Um, So you really, you know, people typically had more than one variety of milk, uh, liquid dairy in their home.
0: That's interesting. And if anyone's ever had evaporated milk, it's very sweet. And I do not recommend, it definitely needs to be in something, just in case not everyone's sure, because I was not sure what it was, and then I had to use it in recipe that stuff's complicated yeah it's it's a whole thing
1: and that's really borden um borden's dairy's main contribution gail borden developed this uh technique for evaporating milk to condense it in the can um and he had tried this earlier in the middle of the 19th century uh he had tried to make a meat biscuit also not appealing um but he actually, he did win a, a medal at the uh, Crystal Palace World's Fair, so somebody liked those meat biscuits. Um, but he turned his attention to milk and trying to create a condensed milk product or evaporated milk product uh, that would allow greater ease of distribution uh, because it's, it's expensive to refrigerate product and to roll it out in this timely manner. Um, but with evaporated milk, it, it was great not only for sort of the everyday consumer that didn't necessarily have uh, refrigeration, which wasn't that common until you know, the, the middle decades of the 20th century, um, but also his big break was the Civil War and the introduction of canned food and drinks to um, Civil War combatants, basically. And the Union was a huge sponsor of Borden's products, um, and the can opener uh, was invented at around the same time, so everything just sort of fell into place to create this perfect ration that you know was modular. You could stack it, you could bring it with you easily. Uh, it could withstand all kinds of temperatures and conditions, um, and and that's really when Borden sort of got on the map.
0: That's really interesting. I didn't know that story, and I didn't think about how long. You always forget how long those main companies have been around. Just because you don't think about it, but that's crazy that Borden has been around since Crystal Palace and the Civil War. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's wild. And that's the other thing about, um, you know, going back to the beginning, and you were asking what sort of drew me to the ice cream package. Um, there are so many, you know, Campbell's soup. Um, many canned products that exist today existed then and are really still... Running their tenure has not yet completed, um, and it 's products like that that I think really have informed a lot of issues or notions of nostalgia, certainly, and what it means to be a patriot and a good family member and a good provider um, and they sort of sort of served as the backdrop to all of these sort of corporate and family and educational pursuits uh, throughout people's lives. And we don't really tend to think of them. We just sort of take them for granted. But um, there's a lot to be sort of unpacked from those kinds of products that uh, aren't particularly noteworthy otherwise, uh, but still sort of carry on throughout the years.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting uh, version of decorative arts research because often you see a lot of luxury items being researched and you never really see everyday items that you have to deal with every day in your life. Yeah exactly and it's I do think that we take them
1: for granted um, in a a major way and in sort of the, the field of decorative art and design history so much of what survives are those luxury objects because they were you know, carefully commissioned, created, and conserved. Um, but things like packaging, I mean, you can buy for one cent on eBay some prime examples of, uh, you know, 19th and 20th century packaging. And it's it's sort of these ephemeral objects and paper goods um, that, you know, hold the three-dimensional product that I think are perhaps the most revealing about the way we live and the way we lived then. Um, and so to, you know, to, to think about the fact that there was a carton of milk or there was a can of Borden's evaporated milk in the home of you know, the wealthy patrons commissioning these decorative objects, um, you know, maybe as well as on the other side of town in the lower income family whose objects don't survive. Um, but we do know what was in their larder and what they would have purchased at the grocery store. And these sorts of products, um, you know, in in certain ways and, and not in others, but they really democratized food um, in an unprecedented way. And particularly as, you know, history marched on and domestic service became less popular, less common, um, sort of around the interwar period, um, people were able to make better food by themselves in their homes um, thanks to these packaged products that made
0: their way to them. Wow, that's so interesting. This is such a cool area of study. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. We've had to battle through some good technical difficulties. (laughs) Yes, but thank you so much. That was so interesting, and I hope everyone enjoys this little milk talk, and next time you have something to drink that's dairy, or you eat something that's dairy, you think about this podcast. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks.